0: Aaron, inquire, God bless you and thank you 10,000 times for your service. Wasn't that wonderful? My goodness. And not only only the sound of it, but the visual presentation of it was just marvelous. Now, I want to ask you, you didn't hurt yourself when you did that, did you? That was great. Marvelous. A lot of energy into it. Let me ask you uh, to join me in the book of Obadiah. If you need to use the table of contents, that's perfectly fine, okay? Obadiah, I do know of a Christian who had a nightmare that uh, he would uh, be called upon to read uh, from Obadiah, and he'd turn to his table of contents, and it would be missing, and he had to go searching for it. The book of Obadiah is after the major prophets before Matthew, and it's towards the end of the Old Testament, and it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's got a powerful and pungent message. And here at Beach Haven, we believe the Bible and we cover books of the Bible. Uh, My predecessor did that so well, Dr. Sims, who's with us today, our pastor emeritus. And then uh, I've uh, attempted to do that. And we just go through books of the Bible and we'll do two messages on the book of Obadiah. We'll do the first 16 verses uh, today. But here in the uh, text you find a tremendous concern and, uh, and intense displeasure on the part of God towards the nation of Edom. Now, back during the first Persian Gulf War in the early 90s, uh, Iraqi, um, uh, Iraqi citizens were forced out of the nation because the nation was, in many ways, devastated. And they went to a neighboring nation called Jordan. And there in Jordan, they found tremendous welcome and acceptance on the part of Jordanian Christians. In fact, many of the Jordanian Christians took Iraqis into their home. And they were so moved at the love and the service and the witness of the Jordanian Christians that many of the Iraqis turned to Jesus Christ. In fact, so many of them turned to Jesus Christ that today there are more Iraqi Christians in Jordan than Jordanian Christians in Jordan. They had a massive, massive movement of the good news there because of their witness, their love, and their compassion towards the Iraqis in their time of need when their nation was devastated by the foolishness of their dictator. That's not what happens in Obadiah. Edom watches Judah being destroyed with a Babylonian invasion and they stand aloof. They stand back, they stand on the other side. In fact, they block escape routes and God sees every bit of it. And he addresses them in the book of Obadiah to complain intensely about their lack of help towards the nation of Israel. Of course, Edom comes from who? Edom comes from Esau. Judah, Israel, came from who? Jacob. And Jacob and Esau were what? Brothers. And they had a tremendous falling out during their days on earth. And that bitterness and that brokenness and that animosity perpetuated itself for generations and for centuries, so that in 586, when the Babylonians invaded Israel, Edom backed up, stepped away, and did not do anything to help the Israelites. In fact, they blocked their path to escape. And God here makes it very, very clear that he's terribly displeased with Edom because of that. And to summarize, look at verse 11, and actually begin in verse 10. He says here, For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, or the day that you stood aloof, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. In other words, God says, in the day that you stood aloof, I'm counting you, Edom, as if you had been actively violent towards Israel. You are passive, apathetic, indifferent, aloof. You're therefore as guilty as those who perpetuated violence against Israel Is his message to Edom. Now, I want us to do two things with the text uh, this morning. Uh, first, I want us to analyze it, and then I want us to apply it. Let's look at an analysis of it first. First, there is an active sentence in verses 1 through 9. God actively intervenes into Edom and sentences them with severe judgment. Uh, He uh, he says he would penetrate their position. Uh, Edom was 3,500 feet up along some cliffs with great ravines, and so it was at a place that as far as military strategy and positioning is concerned, was very advantageous. It was easy to defend. And God makes remark about that. But he says in verse 2, Behold, I'll make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend on high as the eagle, even... Uh, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. God said, I will penetrate your position. And then he says, I will plunder your possessions. Verses 5 and 6. If these have come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off, would they not have stolen only till they had enough? If great gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out or ransacked. How Edom shall be ransacked. How hidden his treasures shall be sought after. And so their possessions would be plundered. They would lose their entire economy and their nation would be torn to pieces economically, financially, and materially. And then he would pulverize their packs. in verse 7. They had pacts with other nations, but look at the treachery in verse number 7. All the men in your confederacy, shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one in Edom is aware of it, to paraphrase. And so all those that they're counting on for human strength would turn against them and they would suffer because of it. And then finally, God says, I'll pummel your plans in verses 8 and 9. Well, not in that day, says the Lord, Will I not in that day even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? In other words, God says I'm going to actively intervene and take all the wisdom, the collective wisdom of your leaders in Edom, your most educated, your most capable, your most experienced, and they will will address the problems that you have and I will confuse their wisdom. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, every one of you needs a book that was compiled by William Bennett entitled Index of Leading Cultural Indicators. It's been a while since he's updated it, but it proves the point that America has been battling some problems, some social problems since the 60s. And despite all the research and the trillions of dollars put to them, we have not yet solved them. We're nowhere near. Here in Edom, it's because their wisdom was confused. God actively intervened and confused their wisdom. Now, look at verse 2 and 4 and 8. I want to make a point here and uh, show you how a preacher looks at the Bible. We look for repetition here to see what is the point of the text. That oftentimes is a clue. He says here in verse 2, "...behold, I will make you small among the nations." Then verse 4, at the end of verse 4, from there I will bring you down. Verse 8, will I not in that day even destroy wise men from Edom? In other words, three times in this text, God makes it clear that there is going to be tragedy to come to Edom, not because of happenstance, not because of circumstance, not because of the natural way that things flow in the world. God says, I am actually going to intervene and I'm going to wreck your nation is precisely what he states here. And ladies and gentlemen, by A.D. 70, all the Edomites have been eliminated from the earth. You can go to ancient, go to Israel today. In fact, you could go back to the first century, A.D. 71, or today and not find a single Edomite anywhere in that world. They've been eliminated from the earth, just like the Lord said here. And so there's an active sentence. Then look at the passive violence in verses 10 through 14. We read that, but he said, for violence against your brother Jacob. But they didn't do anything. That's the point. They didn't do anything, so God counted them as violent. He said, in the day that you stood on the other side, even you were as one of them. And it gets worse in verse 12. Look what they did. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity. They just gazed and watched. They rubbernecked Israel's collision With Babylon. And then he goes on and uh, he says in verse 14, you should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped. So they actually blocked the path of those trying to escape. They did not actively engage in violence, but they were guilty of passive violence in verses 10 through 14. But the third thing I want you to see as we analyze the text is this, equal consequence. Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return on your own head. And he goes on to say, "For and I'm going to paraphrase here in verse number 16. For as you drank in celebration on my holy mountain, after Israel had been deported, so shall all the nations drink in celebration in Edom. Yes, they shall drink and swallow. They shall be as those, they, as though they had never been. Are you familiar with the name uh, Martin Niemoller? Martin Niemoller was a Lutheran pastor in Germany in the thirties. He at first was in support of Hitler, but then he began to be uh, he began to be suspicious of him. But he got suspicious a little too late. In fact. And they came for a number of the groups that Martin Niemöller did not appreciate. Martin Niemöller was anti-communist. He was against the unions. He was against the Jews. He, in fact, eventually was arrested himself when he grew suspicious of Hitler and was put into a concentration camp and eventually liberated by allied forces. And he spent the balance of his life traveling the world, speaking of his experience and how he had wised up to the treachery and the, uh, well, frankly, the demonic nature of Hitler's rule in Germany. And part of his speech, he would make this statement. He said, first, they came for the communists, but I did not speak up because I was not a communist. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak up because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak up because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and, I, and there was no one left to speak up for me. That's what God says Edom's going to experience. Just as they dish out this passivity in a time of need, when Israel was in need, so that would happen with them as well. Ladies and gentlemen, God does not want us to be aloof God wants us to be active and intentional about his business in the world. Having an intentional life and not being aloof from things mentioned in the text is profoundly important to God. The person that's got a plan, that implements it, that is intentional about other lives is the one that God is going to favor. And and there's some hints here in the text about um, where we need to be intentional. In fact, not only intentional, but we need to rush towards some things that are found in the text. And the first is this, rush towards the world. Uh, look, Look at verse number one. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent "...among the nations, saying, Arise, let us go up against her for battle." A messenger has been sent to the nations. A messenger, someone who will verbally communicate the word. Uh, Sent, in the Greek Old Testament, we get the word apostle from this. In lower case, in the New Testament, that is a missionary. And then sent to the nations... Anytime you read nations in the Old Testament, start thinking of missions. Intentional outreach with the good news of Almighty God to a world that is outside His promise and outside His covenant. Ladies and gentlemen, verse 1 in Obadiah, one of the most dreadful books in the Old Testament, and justifiably so, is a missionary document. In fact, There is enough material in the Old Testament to build a commitment and an empire of missions for the name of Jesus Christ. There has to be, because that was the Bible of Jesus and the early church. Rush to the world. That's the point that is found in. Now look, Christianity, real Christianity, the kind of Christianity that conforms to the mind and the heart of God and the example of Christ and his apostles, is one that is intentional about reaching the world. It doesn't hover over it and harass it, not that at all. But it is the kind that gives itself to reaching the world for Christ, that, that is not passive, that is not aloof, that is not presumptuous, but intentionally and constantly seeks ways to be engaged in the world, usually at an individual level. Uh, in fact, I've said this before, but many of you are new. It, it is hard, to it's impossible to spell God, gospel, or good news without first spelling go. Real Christianity is on a mission and it's constantly going in the power of the Holy Spirit towards the world. And so that's why our church does things like two services and does things like friend day. We do all that we can to make connections with others and get them under the influence of the gospel of Christ. And by the way, research over 40 years has been consistent that 80% of those that you invite will respond warmly and kindly to the invitation. In fact, in many of your lives, it's even much higher than 80%. Rush towards the world. But there's a second thing, rush towards family rush towards family now Edom uh, happened to be the nation that descended from Esau Judah happened to be the nation that descended from Jacob and God uh, leverages that relationship that brother relationship and that biological relationship between the two nations here in the here in the text look at verse number 10 for violence against your brother Jacob shame shall cover you Verse 12, you should not have gazed on the day of your brother. God is not only cognizant of the nations, God is cognizant of the family. God is very intense about prioritizing family. I came along in 1965, which was the beginning of Gen X and the baby buster generation. Our parents in that generation ended up being the me generation of the 70s. We were the latchkey kids. We were some of the ones that were among the first to cook frozen pizza in the microwave after school. We would come home with a key around our neck. We would open the door, come on in, and take care of ourselves without any adult supervision. Sometimes it was a blast. Other times it was quite frightening. But um, uh, that's, uh, that's the generation that we were a part of. And uh, although that may not have been true in your family and you may have been committed to your family in those days, a lot of us grew up rather empty because we did not have an awful lot of attention from adults. So often there were many adults, and it gets worse and worse as you go further west in the country, that were focused on their own priorities and they were throwing off the shackles that America had had, so-called shackles, that America had placed on men and women to prioritize marriage and to prioritize parenthood. And there were a lot of us that felt that in those days. A lot of us were very, very lonely. And so that generation, one characteristic of it is they learned to figure things out for themselves and they became very independent at solving problems. The thing that you can't do with that, however, is that you can't take a family that's not interested in you and make them be interested. And so one characteristic of that adult generation now is that they're very intense about their families. They didn't grow up with much of one, but they're very intense about them now. And I felt that through the years. I don't want to go into a lot of detail today, but I have felt some of that. A number of weeks ago, it may have been a couple of months ago, we were at home and all of us were together. Uh, my dear bride and our four kids, and we were talking about uh, some dreams, and we were talking about bucket lists. You're familiar with the concept of a bucket list? A list of things you want to do before you what? Kick the bucket, all right? Well, we were talking about that, and then we sat down uh, around the kitchen table, and we ate dinner that night. And I looked at them, And I said, this is my bucket list. This is it. This, if I don't do anything else in the world, if I don't travel any place else, this is my bucket list. May I say to you, if you if you have kids, if you're going to, they are the bucket list. They are the bucket list. God calls them in Psalms 127 arrows. They're an inheritance. They are a heritage of the Lord. They are better than an estate. They are better than an inheritance. And in a difficult time, they're better than arrows. They are the bucket list. They're all those images. Rush to your family. Whatever you've got to do to heal your family, do it. Do it. Now, I go home and my wife has cooked up a meal of crow for me just about every time I get home, all right? If you've got to eat some, and I've had it a lot of different ways. I've had it barbecued. I've had it, I've had it rotisserie. I've had it fried. It's nasty. Last time I had it raw. Listen, whatever you've got to do, whatever you've got to do to heal your family and prioritize it, do it. Rush to your family. Rush to the world. But I want you to look at verse 15. I want you to see one more thing to which we can rush. Now watch this. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Now this is God's threat towards Edom. Watch this carefully. This is God's threat towards your sin as well. Romans 6 verses 6 and 7, imagine your sin and guilt, our sin and guilt, as being a separate body from us. And with the power and the effectiveness of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what God does is God separates you from your sin and he takes your sin and shapes it into a body the moment you are converted or were and he crucifies it and kills it. Now Let me ask you this. What has your sin done to you? What has your guilt done to you? It's taken advantage of you. It has seized opportunity. It has created all sorts of passion that's misleading. It has killed our walk with God. God says to the separate body of your sin that when you turn to Jesus Christ, He will do to it precisely what it has done to you. That's what He will do. Now, why do you Christians keep talking so much about sin? Do you know what? Come, come here. Let me let me tell you. We talk about sin because we're re- realistic. Let me ask you something. Is it, is it real to drift from God? Is it a painful thing? Well, th- then we talk about it. Is, is lust a realistic possibility and damaging? Th- then we talk about it. Within the context of grace, of course, but we do. In other words, we do not fake as if these things are not real and constant elements of misery and sorrow. And in fact, you think back to when Jesus was introduced to the world. He's still in utero. He's still in utero. And God the Father says to his future stepfather, Joseph, he says, you shall call him what? Jesus, which is Hebrew for Jehovah saves, because he will save his people from their sins. In other words, the introduction of the name of Jesus for the first time of the countless times that it's been used is introduced within the context of human sin. That is the point at which we meet him. So if you've been anything less than perfect, you can come to Him. That's what it takes. Uh, Charles Spurgeon put it this way, commenting on Matthew 1.21, You should call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from His sins. Uh, Listen to what he says. He says, Notice the startling and gracious fact that our Lord's connection with His people lies in the direction of their sins. Their first link, the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, yet not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. Not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. If you've been anything less than perfect, God promises that by the power of the cross and the resurrection, God shall treat your sin just as it has treated you. He will crucify it and raise you by the power of the gospel. That's the promise. That's what God will do. You just need to be a sinner. You know that you've got a need and come to him. And dear child of God, you've already done that. It's all been wiped away. So you don't add to it. You don't contribute to it. You trust it in him is what you do. After the fall of the Soviet Union, there were a number of churches that went to the former Soviet Union to do mission trips. And one church went to a hospital. They had some medical personnel in their church and they went to a hospital in a city of 300,000 people. They did a great work there, but they, they were a bit surprised by what they found. The hospitals there were not like the hospitals from back home. They had good doctors. They had uh, useful facilities, but there were no sheets for the bed. There were no pillows for the pillow, uh, pillows or pillowcases. Uh, There were no blankets. There was no food service in the hospital, and there was no medicine. So what families had to do is that they had to provide their own in a desperate time of need for a loved one. And so this Mission team spent an awful lot of time collecting supplies for the hospital. Do you know that's how some people treat trying to get right with God? That's precisely what they do. You you know, they'll come, they'll come, but they've got to collect their own resources and their own righteousness, and, and then they come to God. Listen. Knock that off. Don't do that. Stop doing that. Come to him just as you are. Just show up at the emergency room door with a need. He has a medical service and a hospital that is fully supplied. He's done it all. You just show up with a need and let the great physician take care of every bit of it. If you'll do that, if you'll do that, he's going to take care of you. That's what you do. And I want to pray with you about that. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel of Christ. And I want to pray for friends today, oh God, that they would come.